A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Welcome to the December 2013 edition of Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Yes, Houston, we have a podcast, a cheap but perfectly apt pun that sets us up nicely for a celebration of Apollo 13. I'm James Lovell, uh, Captain retired Navy. We'll hear from the Apollo 13 commander later on and we'll also talk to an engineer working on Apollo's successor Orion who has big plans for this new spacecraft. What you might do for the first Mars missions is have the astronauts orbit Mars and land on one of its two tiny moons Phobos or Deimos and from there they can control rovers on the Martian surface. With us former NASA engineer David Baker, the author of a new book, The Apollo 13 Haynes Manual, gripping detailed stuff for the true space fanatic, says new scientist, and a true space fanatic, TV legend, Apollo song singer and presenter of the Gareth Jones on Speed podcast, Gareth Jones. Now, 40 years after the last Apollo mission, and yet this still resonates these these amazing missions david it's worked very well hasn't it It, (laughs) it's it's been the popularity pill of the century really and uh, it just goes on and and gareth i mean you've you've even written a song Mm. about we've had it on the podcast podcast. i've actually written three songs now about the apollo space program (laughs) um uh, one of them was about the, the lunar grand prix which happened on the later apollo missions but Probably of all the Apollo missions, Apollo 13 is the the story arc, the part of the story arc to follow. Whilst everybody remembers Apollo 11 for its success, you know we should remember Apollo 13 for being success in the triumph, uh, triumph in, in the face of adversity. You might say an extraordinary mission, which I think could only have gone right thanks to. Tom Hanks. (laughs) (laughs) It was a mistake putting Forrest Gump in the spacecraft (laughs) in the first place. But the the whole ethos of Apollo kind of was putting the crucible of Apollo 13 because to learn to go to the moon, we had to create systems that would get us there. And these systems were so versatile in the time of disaster, they still find a way home. Well, let's begin on board Apollo 13, on its way to the moon on 13th of April 1970. And Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes and Jack Swigert have just finished a live TV broadcast. Dan, we've got one more item for you when you get a chance. We'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tanks. In addition, I uh, have a shaft and trunnion okay. for a look at the Comet Bennett if you need it. Stand by. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. Can say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Main B, bus undervolt. Roger, main B, undervolt. Stand by, 13, we're looking at it. We had a pretty large bang associated with the uh, caution and warning there. 
On the ground in the control room in Houston, flight director Glenn Lunny was about to start his shift. There were a lot of warning lights on the consoles here in the control center. The cockpit was lit up with warning lights. Fuel cells were kicking offline. Cryo tanks looked like they were going down. Communications was patchy. There were a lot of things going wrong. The problem was that easy to figure out what was the root cause of this apparent chaos. And it took about, oh, 15 or 20 minutes for people to put the the bang that was reported and the fact that things were spewing out into space uh, and the fact that some of, one of the oxygen tank was going to zero and the other one was falling. People at first didn't want to believe all that. In 15 or 20 minutes, people began to accept that that was really the case. We, we were not going to land on the moon. We were going to be working on survival of this crew and getting them back home. Flight Director Glyn Lunny, who I spoke to in the preserved Apollo control room last year. And you can hear a longer version of that interview in our January 2013 podcast. Now, those events of April 1970, I think, have become almost mythical, particularly since the Apollo 13 film. David, you were there. You were working for NASA as an engineer mm. in one of the, the back rooms mm. at, at Houston. Um, give us a sense of, of what was what was mm. going on. What, what was mm. the atmosphere like? Because from the film, and I think a lot of us have, I mean, any space boffin has, has seen seen the film, mm. uh, you get an impression actually it was only a few people working mm. on it. But this was an enormous undertaking to save this crew that had got into trouble. Well, it came out of nowhere, and and I don't think anybody really appreciated, as Glenn Lunny just said, that there were a whole cascade of events like a waterfall just tumbling down, and nobody could believe that there was a systemic series of systems that were collapsing, and that one of the most frightening things underpinning it all is that we were losing the ability to keep the crew alive in terms of what they could breathe, in terms of oxygen, and then when you had to start using the command module batteries, which were very limited and would only just get you down through the atmosphere, everything seemed to be dying on you, and and it was very difficult to get your head around that. And and this was on the way to the moon, and and they still had, even if they they did what they ended up doing, which swinging around the moon and coming back, you you inevitably had several days. They'd got to stay alive for several more days. Well, the inter... Well... well, you couldn't just turn around and come back again. That's that's right. Worse than the technical problems that were occurring is that we just had the crew go on to a non-free return trajectory, as it's called, which to get to the Framoro landing site, you needed to have the kind of path to the moon that would not swing you around and immediately return you to the Earth. So a lot of propulsion burns, a lot of rocket motor, a lot of bangs and things had to go off on a system or a series of systems that seemed already in a teetering state of near collapse. So they were on a path, I didn't, I didn't realise that, they were on a path by that time into orbit around the moon rather than to swing around the moon and come back again. They would go around the moon come what may. They'd only go into orbit if you slowed down. But on flinging around from the far side of the moon, they'd be flung way off from an alignment with the Earth. So that course had to be realigned. That was the first priority. So in a way, it's it's like what Gareth said, actually. Um, You can't quite, with these systems, meant you could adapt them. You can't quite imagine something similar happening today because I just think of a car. You know, if if the electronic component on your car goes and the windscreens don't open, the whole car won't start. Well, we've got the right man to ask here. You've written this book, which is billed as the owner's workshop 
manual for the command and service and lunar module upper and de- you know ascent and descent stage which is great because you own one don't you I, you've got, I've got three yeah. you know I bought two on eBay uh, but, and there's another in the Pacific which is still down <laughs> <Yeah>. there <laughs> and uh, you are actually you could argue one of the owners not only the, the owner but the designer the engineer you know you had your grubby fingers all over this did you have faith in the systems that you could get out of this almost impossible situation, given yes. the resources you have. <clears throat> yes, yes. I mean, I was in the mission evaluation room, which is across the corridor from the mission operations control room, which is the room you see on television yeah. uh, with all of the consoles and, and the trenches, as, as they're called. And the information coming into and out of those consoles, which you see on television, flows in and out of the mission evaluation room. Mm-hmm. And it stacks up a vast amount of data that normally isn't looked at right in the immediacy of the flight being conducted as it goes. But suddenly there was a whole mountain of material pouring out that had to be evaluated and analysed. Quickly. Yeah, very, very quickly indeed. And and that night, because it was late evening Houston time when when the alerts went in, um, very soon a whole nation was mobilised. There were people converging on car lots lit up like Christmas trees when normally they'd be overnight empty spaces. Thousands of people poured in just to see if they could help to contract us all over. But I don't think, and it's difficult looking back over 40 years, I don't think there was any point that I personally thought we would lose the crew. Wow. Um, I was very young. (laughs) (laughs) That explains it. So was that naivety or was that because so many systems have been worked through that everyone knew this thing inside out and if there was a way to get them back, there would be... Yeah. It would be possible. I I think this is the thing that they try to put across in the film, which, which I do have to say is about as close as you could ever get. I mean, you're never going to replicate something exactly the way you recall it if you were there, but a very good job. So look at it, it's good. We were just so damn angry that this thing was going to get us and we weren't going to let it. Did that book, writing the book, bring it all back? It was very interesting because it took me a long time to see the film. I didn't want to overlay, you know, um, decades roll by and memories fade and you're only well aware yourself that you don't quite remember things in the way you think you can. Um, Going back was a most wonderful opportunity to rewind and open up again. And I felt feelings and I experienced emotions um, tough, resolute decisions not to let this thing get us. Um, not not, not um, weepy-type emotions at all, because it was a case of absolute grit that we were not going to let this happen. And that came back in writing the book, and I remember it as a very different period to the one we live in today. When you hear... Sorry, sorry when, you, when you hear that um, bit of... Uh, them talking from orbit when we the Houston we've had a problem. I mean, to make that mm. very clear, it's Houston we've had a problem, not Houston we have a problem. Well said, Richard. Yes. <laughs> exactly right. Um, does that bring back em- emotions when, when you hear that? Because both I and Gareth, when we were me and Gareth, when we were listening to that, we were saying, mm. "Don't, don't stir the cryotanks. Yeah. <laughs> That's don't a really it. bad. Don't, don't yeah, stir the cryotanks." Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean, this this was it. It was a very routine operation. They'd been stirring the cryotanks excessively because of problems we'd had with those tanks before. There were many problems on the launch pad. There were problems with the lunar module. One of the tanks was overpressurizing there. 
the cryo tanks weren't working properly. They were nearly scrubbed for that flight. They'd been taken out of an earlier spacecraft because they were failing. So this, unfortunately, was the nature of the way Apollo ran because it didn't have the super efficient health and safety criteria that we have today. Now, that we should say the cryo tanks, they contained oxygen. Yes, oxygen, and the, there was two for hydrogen, two for oxygen. And it was essentially the very heart of the spacecraft because that produced electrical power by bringing those together over a nitrogen catalyst. It produced water to reconstitute the cooling system and, when purified, be used for drinking. So it provided everything, and without electricity and without gas that came from the oxygen for the atmosphere, it was the heart of the thing. Gareth, you and I are the, the same age, obviously yep. late 30s. <coughs> um, we, we, I personally don't remember the event. I remember the moon landings yep. very, very clearly, mm. but nothing about the events of Apollo 13 on the news at the time, probably because I was watching Scooby-Doo or playing outside with my skipping rope and clackers. You had such a... Such a <laughs> I know, such a nice thing. But... So for me, it's yep. the film. So for me, right. my in a way, my memory... You were saying about, you know, you have to re be careful not to rewrite your memory so for me my memory of Apollo 13 is Tom Hanks it's so I'm quite pleased you said it was similar yeah that that, I, I, that's really reassuring I mean I, I, I look at it and I enjoy it it just feels a bit squashy in Hollywood but the facts are right they're pretty mm. well apart from one shot where you've got Ken Mattingly seemingly still at the base of uh, Launchpad 39A for, or was it B for the launch of the Saturn V was it Mission 505 I forget but um, I actually remember the events of Apollo 13 I, I I remember hearing it on the radio in the morning before I went to school and we walked to school and when we got to school and I would have been seven years old in April uh, 1970. 1970 so I was seven for the moon landing I tell people I'm oh, eight so I was, just I was a seven. little yeah I was tiny oh, and I remember I remember hearing an update on the radio and I remember crying in school uh, I took it very personally. Wow. I was genuinely concerned that they weren't going to come back because the way we hadn't experienced this before, we weren't the trained engineers that you were. We saw we saw that emotional story arc that would appear as a movie successfully so many years later, and I, I cried in school. It, you know, it was personal. The Apollo moon landings are yeah. to this day personal for me. Uh, uh, for anyone who uh, doesn't know, it, the story does end happily. <laughs> we, <laughs> know, we, we know that. It's a bit of a, bit no. of a spo sorry spoiler That's alert. Spoiler. <laughs> Should have said that beforehand. No spoiler idea. alert. It does end happily. The crew do get back to Earth. But, David, I just want to pick up on something you said. The problems of that that spacecraft. Were there lots of problems, actually, mm. with Apollo? Could this have happened or similar things have gone mm. wrong with mm. other mm. Apollo missions? Yes, yes. Um, I think, remind ourselves, of course, that this was uh, essentially a goal that was set by a president who took what was at the time a very systematic series of missions unfolding over the decade of the 60s and used it for a political purpose. Um, and while it was a magnificent and fine technological achievement, that was not the way you'd build systems or spacecraft if you were installing a permanent system of expeditions and a perfect series of vehicles for long-duration transportation. There were problems all the time. Is that one of the reasons that Apollo got cancelled early, you think? That, that well, Apollo 17 became the last one? It's always put down to budget, but could yeah, that be a reason it, that they it, were afraid of losing a crew? It, 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 the real reason why Apollo was cancelled was simply the fact that, that the money that was being spent on Apollo was much needed in a diminishing budget that was crashing through the floor. 
um, going down and down each year. Uh, something had to be done to get a reusable system. And naively, we all thought, and I, I became very involved with the shuttle program, we all thought that that would be the way to lower the cost of space flight, and that would get us out under the gap in the door. I think Apollo 13 contributed to world peace. I kid you not. I kid you not in this. At the point at which we were flying Apollo, we realised things can go wrong. There is a greater sense of jeopardy than even we had forecast. And ultimately, that psychological approach would have led to the ASTP, the Apollo-Soyuz test project, which again confirmed those those alliances, those the end of war, the start of cooperation that's led to the ISS and reinforced this relationship across nations here on Earth. Gareth, I think you really put your finger on the point there because we seem to be paired across the ideological divide with the problems that we were seeing in the space programme itself. Mm. This was just three years after we'd lost three in the Apollo fire, mm-hmm. Apollo 13. This was just three years after the Russians had lost Kamarov in the first Soyuz. Within a year of us having this near disaster with Apollo 13, the Russians would lose three more. It bound us together. And the interesting thing is that Glyn Lenny, who was so um, wrapped up in the recovery of Apollo 13, was instrumental in forging those links by being Ah, the lead flight director for the Apollo-Soyuz test project. But it's great to hear you say that. And I also, if I can reflect on the fact that you said you cried when you were a child, I think that's, that's great, really, because that sensitivity to events that were taking place, big events in the mm. world outside. I have to remember going outside from mission control, and I didn't sleep those nights. I, I was awake for the whole time, the three and a half days. Um, going outside, you, you, you began to feel that if you didn't watch it, your emotions would catch up with you. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. Well, let's hear from Apollo 13 Commander Jim Lovell. Kate Arkless Gray met up with him recently as he was in the UK and began by asking if he was genuinely fearless, since that's how he came across. I think everybody was apprehensive doing things for the first time or in a, you know, strange uh, situation and and position. I think training overcomes that. I think the reliability of the equipment you have, even though we know it was built by the lowest bidder, it it was important. And so uh, astronauts by a a group live on the edge. That's the type of individual that you will see that will volunteer for uh, going into space. Looking at piloting skills, obviously they were very important to you on Apollo 13, but with this new use of technology and automation, do you think that pilots these days are almost, I don't like to say lazy, but have kind of become a bit complacent about the sort of basic skills that they need? Well, I think that uh, with the automation we have today and the miraculous advancement of uh, electronics and, uh, uh, the, and the computers and things, I, I think we come, become uh, sort of complacent and uh, rely on it. We learn the fundamentals of flying. And the small aircraft that we started in are basically hand-piloted, not much in the way of automation. But as you get older and you fly, get any more sophisticated aircraft, the aircraft builders, of course, uh, uh, want to make life as easy as possible and will be putting in automating, automatic systems that will allow the pilot more time to to think and to relax and do things. And uh, autopilots have become very sophisticated. Uh, But if you always have to keep in mind the idea that they have no brains, they're doing just what they can do, and when the power fails or something else gives in, uh, 
or there's an overabundance of ice on the wings and they don't, can't comprehend that, then piloting skills, the, the basic fundamentals of stick and rudder, are very necessary to be a very good aviator or pilot. Could that be an issue going to Mars? Because the journey is so long that you wouldn't have the time to practice. You know, if something did go wrong, would you then be in trouble? I would suspect so. <laughs> if you look at the travel of Curiosity, uh, it left here just slightly under escape velocity, and it took eight and a half months to travel to Mars and the launch was at the time when Mars was actually fairly close to the Earth. And so if you look at the simplest of Martian flights, that is a, a circumnavigation uh, of Mars, no, no orbiting, nothing else, you know, you'd have to say at least 17, 18 months to do that. It means that uh, you have to have very reliable equipment, you have to have a sense of redundancy that there's more than one in case one fails. You probably have to have a nice mixed crew. I would suspect that uh, it would probably be pretty good for husbands and wives to make that trip. People who really live on the edge and are compatible with each other and a vehicle big enough to carry the, the supplies and the returned fuel and things like that that are necessary. One of Richard's all-time heroes, Apollo 13 commander Jim Lovell, who also flew on Gemini 7, Gemini 12 and Apollo 8, which we'll be celebrating at the end of the podcast. And I think the fact that he flew on all those missions at the time of Apollo 13 made him the world's most experienced astronaut. So if anyone was going to be in charge of Apollo 13, he's probably the person you want. Uh, this is Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can reach us through Facebook, Twitter and at spaceboffins.com. So what about the successor to Apollo, the NASA spacecraft that might one day take humans to Mars? The first Orion capsule, or to give it its proper title, the Orion Multipurpose Crew Vehicle, is ready for testing. It should be capable of a wide range of deep space missions, although no one's entirely sure what they are. Well, I've been talking to one of the engineers involved in the Orion programme, Josh Hopkins, who has just the best space title. He's Lockheed Martin's Space Exploration Architect. I asked him how Orion compared to Apollo. It looks like Apollo, and so a lot of people think of it as, as sort of just another space capsule, but really it's a, a pretty big difference. Um, it is, for example, about 50% bigger than Apollo is on the inside, which means that it's a more comfortable and practical space to live in. It has some creature comforts like a toilet that the Apollo spacecraft didn't have, and it also has some modern features like advanced solar arrays and what we call an, an amine swing bed, which is a new technology for getting rid of the carbon dioxide that the astronauts breathe out. Even so, even though it's double the size of Apollo, Apollo is pretty small. So you wouldn't want to live in that area, even though it's got a toilet, even though you're not going to run out of air, for a prolonged period, surely. Right. So Orion is bigger than the Apollo spacecraft, but smaller than the space shuttle. And if you think about it, the space shuttle would carry seven or eight astronauts for maybe two weeks, but for a longer stay, you'd want to go to a space station. It's the same thing with Orion. It's good for something like going to the moon, which is relatively nearby, 
perhaps going to libration points, which are just beyond the moon. But if you were going to go to an asteroid or to Mars, you would want a bigger habitat that Orion would dock to, and then the crew would be able to live in there. And that would have more living space and more room for supplies. Now, you're talking about a lot of coulds. It could do this. It could do that. It's being built. It, it's nearing completion, or at least the, the first test models to go into space. It, it strikes me as a, a spacecraft in search of a mission that actually no one knows what you're going to use it for. Yeah, to some extent, that's true. And it, it has some obvious disadvantages, but it's also got, it has some advantages in that we can design the spacecraft to be relatively flexible and have lots of different options for what we can do. So, The previous space policy was that the United States was going to go back to land on the moon. And then in 2010, due to budget limitations, basically, that NASA wasn't going to get the money that they had expected, the government decided that we wouldn't try to land humans on the moon in the near term. But there's still debate and discussion about what we should do instead. So we're looking at missions that could orbit the moon and have astronauts control rovers on the lunar far side, which nobody's ever explored before, or... Astronauts could go out to visit an asteroid. There have been lots of asteroids discovered in the last 10 years, so there's lots of targets for missions that we didn't know were out there before. Or you could bring an asteroid back to the vicinity of Earth and have astronauts explore it that way. So you mentioned a whole list of things it could be used for. Which are ones that you particularly interested in doing? I was intrigued, for instance, about the idea of going into orbit around the moon and then operating rovers, almost having a sort of avatar on the surface rather than a real astronaut. Yeah, that's one that we've been working closely with NASA and the University of Colorado and and other organizations the far side of the moon has never been explored before. The, the way the moon rotates means it always faces one familiar side to us, and there's a, a far side. It's occasionally inaccurately called the dark side um, of the moon that, that we don't see. And there are at least two really interesting things you could do on the far side. One is that that's a very radio quiet region. The bulk of the moon is protecting it from all of the noise, the radio noise that we have on Earth from FM radio stations and lightning and radars and so on. So you could do radio astronomy on the far side in frequency bands that astronomers have never been able to explore before. And another scientific interest is bringing rocks back from some of the oldest impact basins on the far side. And that would tell us not only what was happening on the moon in the early days of the solar system, but what was happening in terms of meteorite impacts all over the inner solar system. And that time frame corresponds to when life was first arising on Earth and also when Mars seems to have had a habitable environment. If we can't afford to to land astronauts on the moon directly, we'd like to be able to send robots down to the moon on the far side and have astronauts in lunar orbit controlling those rovers to deploy the antennas for a radio instrument or to to choose which rocks to bring back. Okay, so you sit in this orbit above the moon, which means your astronauts can be in the Orion capsule operating rovers in real time pretty much on the surface of of the moon. What about then doing the similar thing on, on Mars? I mean, you could then operate rovers on the ground on Mars from Mars orbit rather than having to deal with this this time delay. And it saves the hassle of trying to put astronauts on the surface. Right. If you were just going to explore the moon, you'd probably say, well, we, we could control those lunar rovers from Earth. And in fact, that's been done in the 1970s. The Soviets had a, two lunar rovers that they controlled from Earth. But the big advantage of doing that at the moon is that it's a way to practice doing that 
before Mars. And then when you go to Mars, what you might do for the first Mars missions is have the astronauts orbit Mars and land on one of its two tiny moons, Phobos or Deimos. And from there, they can control rovers on the Martian surface. And that's much easier than trying to land the astronauts on Mars, at least for the few first few missions. And you get a much bigger payoff by doing that because when we try to operate rovers on Mars today, we're faced with a relatively long time delay and also a very limited internet connection, if you will, for the data that we can get back from those rovers. So being able to be there in near real time with high data rate connection would allow you to explore much more efficiently. The, the people who operate the rovers on Mars today talk about the fact that a, a professional geologist could do in something like one minute what it takes a rover all day to do. So you could explore much more effectively if you got rid of that huge time delay. And why the moons of Mars? Is that easy to do then? Is it rel- well, relatively easy to do. Is it relatively easy to land on Phobos compared to landing on the surface of Mars? It is definitely easier to land on one of the Martian moons than to land on Mars itself for a couple of reasons. One is that those moons are relatively far out from Mars, not as far away as our moon is from Earth, so you're, you're pretty close to the planet. But you don't have to go down into that gravity well and use rockets or heat shield to slow you down and then land on the planet itself. And because these little moons are so small, they're perhaps 10 or 15 kilometers across, their gravity is, is very small. You could essentially land and take off again using very, very small rocket thrusters that, that any spacecraft would have. So they're they're not completely easy, but but you know comparatively easier than landing on Mars. Lockheed Martin space exploration architect Josh Hopkins. Uh, so what do we think of that idea? The idea of landing on Phobos and controlling rovers on Mars, David? I think it's got a great deal of merit to it, um, and I think it's it's one of the more sensible ways of moving forward. Unfortunately, we're saddled with a spacecraft that was designed for the Constellation program under the Bush administration, and it's merely been uh, reintroduced for uh, the current development along with this new space launch system, this big new super rocket. Um, And whereas in the past we had objectives which were driven by what we wanted to do, we're now being driven by objectives about what we can afford. I'm reminded of the space shuttle scenario exactly. The original plan for the space shuttle was a... Um, a vehicle which was uh, the lifter and the orbiter they both were winged, they were both reusable it was a, a versatile design, budget cuts forced us into this compromised design of a fuel, fuel tank with firecracker strapped to it, I'm concerned that Orion, which isn't even a spacecraft at the moment, it's half a spacecraft, the budget is there for the command module, there is no budget for the service module element of it however, the idea that, it, that has been proposed at the European ATV could be used as the service module for this is very intriguing but I am concerned that once again this is a compromised idea that's been okay can we still keep it going can we still keep it going we crossed all those things off oh we, well we, we've got we've got we've, you know we've got an oxygen tank now you know, it, it, there's very little left of the original idea what, what I think is interesting at the moment uh, is the fact that other countries are looking to the moon and Mars we've had India in uh, November the 5th appropriately Guy Fawkes fireworks yes. night they uh, sent off their Mars orbiter mission and that's just 
just left Earth's orbit towards Mars. You've got the, the Chinese who've launched their own lunar rover to the moon. Unfortunately, we won't know if it's arrived <laughs> until after this Space Boffins podcast actually goes out. And um, I, I think that's the excitement is that NASA have almost, it's a bit like the sort of grand empires of Rome and Greece, Mm -hmm. that you feel as though things are changing now. Um, They're not the only player. Um, The Chinese plan to land human beings uh, on the moon by 2025, and several people have already commented, including um, Buzz Aldrin, that the spacecraft that contains the lunar lander is actually really rather large uh, and could contain a human being anyway. So they wonder whether it's being a dress rehearsal. Although I must say that the choice of the word jade rabbit for the rover, even though it is based on a Chinese myth about a goddess who has a a pet rabbit on the moon, it it does sound a little bit like a sex toy. (laughs) (laughs) I think this tells us something about Chinese culture that's going to the moon. Um, You know, the Apollo astronauts were called the Mercury 7. They were gods, you know, named after gods. Um, That's a great voice. Thank you. You should be on TV. (laughs) (laughs) One day, maybe I will. (laughs) And, 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 however, the the Russians, the Soviets, I should say, uh, uh, referred to their first um, influx of, of cosmonauts as my little birdies. Now, when, when, when we go to Mars, or when America goes to Mars with Odyssey, curiosity, you yeah. know, these go, ooh, hello, they're kind of twee. Yeah. But the Chinese, Jade Rabbit, U2 is, is yes, how they call yes. it, U2. I'm expecting Bono to sue at some point. But it tells us something about, you know, the, the, the cuteness in culture. And I think the way that the Chinese go to space is genuinely cute. There's lots of applauding and lots of waving from Actually, crew. if you've not seen, if anybody listening has not seen the launch of the Chinese rocket, do so because it's brilliant. Yeah. And you actually, in a way, get a genuine sense of the speed because often you yeah. don't get that. The rockets, with the positioning of the cameras, it can look as if they're almost stationary for a bit and then very slowly as if someone's underneath launching, hiking it up with their hands. Yeah. This looks fast and furious. Did you see the I, launch, David? Did you? Y- yes, yes, I did. Yes, as and I think this is really part of the presentational stance. I, I think the West is being outmaneuvered, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Asian space is now becoming the new space race. India and China um, are, are very important uh, players in what will promote and provoke, I think, uh, the Americans and maybe the Europeans as well into sustaining and retaining the investment in in space technology but the fact that india is now just the fourth nation or the fourth entity in the world after russia america and europe to send a mission to mars is a very very important thing and this is being felt very deeply in china where on every street corner every roundabout and every every um highway billboard you've got pictures of their cosmonauts and their spacecraft I do think this sense of pride and this sense of aspiration from space is vital and that's one of the core the core reasons to do it as well it's about us and it's about humanity and it's about us as humans and I think the Chinese and the Indians get that and I think NASA's lost it It's also agree. about having a technologically and scientifically literate society because mm-hmm. you can't do this unless you've got the engineers and the scientists to make it happen 
Well, Sue, that's a very important point because we saw this with Apollo where it massively encouraged and stimulated a surge towards science, mathematics, what we call the STEM sciences today. And I think this can be seen as happening in Asian countries as well. You get that money back immediately. You invest at that sort of level. The returns are so great that when they come, they're profound. I think, to be fair, just to end on a, on a positive, the UK gets this. Yeah. And I think Europe, to some extent, gets this. I think NASA's losing it. Well, well, I couldn't agree more, sadly, and I wish it were not the case, but I hope that NASA and the American government will have the intelligence and the maturity to understand that they're players now rather than simply the exclusive top dog because it's not going to be that way in the future. Well, Space Boffins is produced in partnership with the Naked Scientists. We're supported by ABSL Space Products, the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium, and with a grant from the UK Space Agency. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and at spaceboffins.com. And thank you so much to our guests, the wonderful Apollo expert, Gareth Jones, <laughs> and David Baker, whose new book, the Apollo 13 Haynes Owners Workshop Manual, is out now. I'm Sue Nelson. And I'm Richard Hollingham. We'll be back in the new year, but where better to end our podcast of 2013 than from Lunar Orbit? December 1968 marked one of the most significant moments in the space programme, even perhaps human history, the flight of Apollo 8. We have ignition sequence start. The engines are on. Four, three, two, one, zero. We have commit. We have, we have lift off. Lift off at 7.51 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We have cleared the tower. 45 years ago, Apollo 8 became the first manned mission to orbit the moon, allowing its crew of Frank Borman, Jim Lovell and Bill Anders to capture one of the most famous images of all time, Earthrise, the, the colour photo of the blue Earth rising above the barren lunar landscape. It was a view that caught the astronauts by surprise, and they even had to scramble for a camera. Oh my God, look at that picture over there. There's the Earth coming up. Wow, that's pretty. Hey, don't take that stuff, schedule. <laughs> you got a color film, Jim? Hand me a roll of color quick. Oh man, that's great. Where is it? Quick. Down here? Just grab me a color. Moon is a uh, different thing to each one of us. I think that each one of uh, each one uh, carries his own impressions of what of what he's seen today. I know my own impression is that it's a, a vast, lonely, forbidding type existence or expanse of nothing. It looks rather like clouds and clouds of pumice stone, and it certainly would not appear to be a very inviting place to to live or work. Jim, what have you uh, thought most about? Well, Frank, my thoughts were very similar. The vast loneliness up here on the boat is uh, awe-inspiring, and it makes you realize just what you have back there on Earth. The Earth from here is a grand oasis of the big vastness of space. And from the crew of Apollo 8, Close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth.